Hello, and welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we'll be discussing the shameful history of management of mental health disorders, from the locked asylums all the way to the creation and expansion of the procedure known as the lobotomy. I'm quite excited for this episode. It's super fascinating. I've been doing so much reading about it all. Uh, It's very... You just kind of can't believe it happened, like that this was a a normal part of history. It's going to be really good. So um, I will, at this point, give a trigger warning. Obviously, I'm sure you can already tell. Uh, We won't be talking about eating people. That's a win. But we will be talking about mental health, mental disorders, surgery questionable practices all of that kind of thing so just so that you're aware um, and I will add some more up-to-date mental health resources in the resources as well before I kick off I will remember to promote my Instagram uh, it is at when it goes wrong pod on the insta uh, or do uh, make sure that you're following me uh, following the podcast on whatever app you're currently listening on Cool. So let's go back to the history of uh, asylums. And obviously back in the day, mental health was not a thing. I think think we all are aware of that. Uh, And really very much in the the early 1900s and, and earlier, if someone had a mental disorder, and we're talking any kind of mental disorder, you know, anything from kind of anxiety all the way through to very complex uh, difficult to treat disorders they th- there was just no real treatment for them and there was just nothing that people could do uh, and I think that you yeah you you hear about these people kind of being locked up in these these things called lunatic asylums uh, and I, I found um, a definition of lunatic which I thought was quite entertaining uh, which says lunatic was used to describe a person who was sometimes of good and sound memory and understanding and sometimes not <laughs> which I thought was quite good. I feel like that could describe most people in, in real life. But obviously that's become quite a quite an awful word now because it has been so uh, associated with the asylums. And the idea with these asylums was that it gave the mentally ill somewhere to go and somewhere to be looked after and treated. But in reality, it very much was not not that. It was really the the conditions of asylums around the world in in the early 1900s and, and earlier were, were just horrendous, really. It was a lot of people that were kind of just locked up and left there. Uh, it wasn't a case, you know, it wasn't somewhere that people went to rehabilitate and to heal and to come out. It was somewhere that you just kind of got put in and, and left because you were too difficult to manage and too hard to manage outside of outside of the system and in reality you know these asylums ended up having thousands of people in them and they were huge absolutely huge the the size of some of the old UK asylums is is immense and this talk of of these asylums that would have it's like their own train station <laughs> like they're that big uh, obviously a lot of them have now been converted into very nice flats but yeah they were huge but even though they were huge and they had a lot of space, when you look at kind of the conditions that they were staying in, they were just horrendous. They were sleeping in these tiny rooms with their beds just right next to each other, only like a meter in between all of the beds. And they weren't, often they weren't given anything to do. They were just kind of there with with nothing to do. And I know from my point of view, I can't, I can't handle being bored. <laughs> so uh, the fact that they were just kind of left there, I think would probably make them feel a lot worse. 
Often they went in for uh, the idea being that they were going for a short time for treatment, but really they ended up staying there for years. And they were just somewhere you were locked up and left. And at the height of them in the UK, there were 150,000 people locked up in asylums and not not really able to go home or, or be properly cared for. And and the thing around this is that it was the fact that there was little to no really effective treatment for the mentally ill. Uh, so they didn't have any psychiatric drugs at this point. They just didn't really understand therapy and CBT and all of that kind of stuff. There was just nothing, nothing they could do really. And so they just came up with some weird ideas as to what could help people. Uh, one of the ones that I was reading about was something called insulin shock therapy. And back in the day, psychiatrists really thought that like when people had seizures, that was like their brain resetting and they would kind of cure them by having making people have these seizures. And then when they stopped, they'd kind of come out in this, this new world. And so they would basically like give, a, like the psychiatrists would give these patients all this insulin so that they basically like went into a coma um, and then in the coma they would have these seizures and then eventually they'd kind of rouse them by by increasing their blood sugar levels and then they'd kind of come back but they would do this like hundreds of times in a row to try and almost like throw them out of of what they were suffering which you know in hindsight you're just like surely surely this could not be a psychiatric thing to do but we're talking you know we're not we're not talking like 1700s here we're talking 1900s it just seems yeah crazy and they also were a huge fan along the same lines of that that kind of electric shock therapy and you know that does still exist today but it has not it's not the norm obviously it's very much only used for treatment resistant conditions but back in the day they wouldn't they wouldn't use general anesthetic or anything they would keep people awake and just kind of continually shock them um a, a lot to hope that they would kind of have these seizures and and recover but obviously they didn't so yeah you can kind of see how they were being kept in these asylums for so long because if they would if this was what they were planning on doing to make them feel better and then get them out obviously it's very unlikely to work so yeah let's move on then into the creation of the lobotomy because it the lobotomy itself really plays into the the state of the asylums at that time and and this kind of question around the world of what to do with these people how to help them what can we do to get people out of asylums what can we do to stop people going into them and so in the 1900s, there was a very general rise in, in surgical practices. Surgery was really developing as a discipline and it caused a lot of resolutions in a lot of different areas. Uh, as we know today, surgeons are very skilled. And so it very much is something where like, the impact was very positive in a lot of areas. And so naturally, what this meant was that they kind of went to this consideration of psychosurgery. And psychosurgery is the term used to describe surgery, which would cure a mental disorder. And it's not surprising that they went down this route, I don't think, because I think if, even if you go back like way back into history and you think about things like where they would, it was called like trepanning, where they would like cut holes in your skull to like release the evil spirits and stuff. And so I think there's always been this this belief that by manually 
impacting the brain, you can improve things like psychiatric disorders. So yeah, it doesn't surprise me that they went down this route. And this initially started with a man called Fulton. And he was an early scientist and he started doing some weird brain experiments on primates. And what he would do is he would remove the frontal lobe or some of the frontal lobe of their brains. So the kind of front bit, the bit above your eyes uh, and the bit that is more responsible for things like personality and and thought <laughs> compared to the kind of back bit, you know, the brainstem and all that. That's very much responsible for uh, regulation of the body. They would, he would go in, take out this bit of the brain and kind of observe what happened. And unsurprisingly, (laughs) there were very radical changes in the behaviour. And in general, from what he could observe of the monkeys, he thought that the changes were very positive and that the primates were were acting much happier. I, I assume that you can tell that with the monkey, but I mean, I guess... If they were just like sleeping all the time or if they died, then you would know. But I don't know. I think it's quite hard to look at all of them and be like, yeah, they were way, way happier <laughs> when they when they had their brains cut out. I don't know. But anyway, this was a very influential experiment to a lot of other doctors around the world. And uh, a man called Igas Moniz, Mon- Moniz? Uh, saw this report and decided that he wants to do the same thing on humans because why not? Why not? After seeing it happen on the on the monkeys, let's move it on over. And we're talking, you know, we're talking a long time ago here, so we're talking before the joys that are, you know, regulation of medical procedures. And so what Mon Moniz, I'm gonna go with Moniz, it's probably very wrong, sorry. Uh Moniz believed that by severing the connections from the frontal lobe to the rest of the brain, then it would allow the brain to to reshape. And they kind of thought that the frontal lobe must be sending these like dodgy messages back into the rest of the brain. And by kind of cutting it off in, in some way, it would really help cure any mental problems that that person had. And so they didn't want to remove it like the monkey did, uh, like the guy did with the monkey. Uh, they wanted to to kind of just chop, chop bits of it out and kind of stop the front bit communicating to the back bit. And Moniz was not a surgeon, uh, so he paired up with another Portuguese surgeon. So he was a psychiatrist, paired up with a, a surgeon, and he started this procedure, which at first he called the leucotomy. And what would happen is that they would put a patient under general anaesthetic, they would cut holes into the brain, uh, and then they would inject the brain with ethanol in like specific places to destroy connecting fibres. So rather than kind of pulling anything out originally, they, they started injecting it. And they did this originally on seven patients, but sometimes they kind of had to do it multiple times. But eventually they kind of concluded, all right, we've done this seven times and we think there's generally a favourable result. So what they decided then was, okay, because we're having to inject them more in order to get the actual response we wanted, why don't we go to cutting out bits of the brain instead? So they used this this kind of like wire loop thing to basically like cut little cores out of the brain kind of in between Uh, and they would do that several times to take out take out brain matter in between the bits of the brain and they did they ended up doing 20 of these procedures and there was kind of a range of like side effects which to be honest sound terrible but 
assuming at the time they didn't care. Uh, but there were things like incontinence, lethargy, excessive hunger, uh, and a lot more. And what they concluded out of the 20 was that they thought that overall a third improved substantially, a third improved a little bit, and then a third were unchanged. So despite all these horrendous side effects that they also said they had, they were like, no, a third were fine and just totally unchanged and they're the worst off. So obviously, if you kind of hear that, you think that, huh, that's not bad really, is it? Like there's a, there's a two thirds chance I'll come out of this feeling somewhat better. Why, why not? go for it. So he did these 20 and he presented his findings to the medical community in the 1930s uh, to psychiatrists and doctors around the globe. Um, And eventually he actually ended up receiving the Nobel Prize for the creation of this procedure, which is very questionable as we go through, but I think we will, yeah. And there's a lot of questions as to why he's managed to keep it and whether they should take it off him, but yeah, who knows. So at this point, I want to enter our protagonist for today, uh, who is Walter Freeman. And Walter Freeman was an American neurologist. And he was, uh, he came from a family of doctors and he had quite a famous family of doctors. So one of, I think it was like his grandfather was also a neurologist and worked with a lot of like US presidents and very famous high, high profile people. And so whilst originally he didn't really fancy medicine, he was swayed by his family to follow in their footsteps. And not only was he swayed to kind of follow in their footsteps, but he also felt this pressure to make as much of a name for himself as his grandfather had in terms of the work that he did. So not only was he going to study medicine, but he wanted to really make his mark on the world and be known for something. So he studied Then he went into some academic neurology positions uh, at some asylums in Washington, D.C. And so he was treating patients, but also studying them uh, and and really working in in the psychiatry and neurology area. And over the years, he kind of built up his his persona and his experience, and he eventually started a partnership with a man called James Watts, and he was a successful neurosurgeon. And Walter and Watts basically, Freeman and Watts, basically started, heard of this paper that Moniz had published and was getting, was very interested in it. They were like, ooh, this could be great in America because we've got these overflowing asylums. We should use this procedure to really change the change the lives of of these people in these asylums. And so they were like, right, we want to start doing this leukotomy procedure for those in the asylums or or elsewhere that were really at a place where they weren't weren't likely or weren't getting better. So they practiced on, you know, like dead bodies and that kind of thing. And then eventually they found a patient and the first patient was a woman called Alice Hood Hammett. And she was a housewife, but she had very severe depression. And she kind of, she was at this point where, it, and I mean, this is quite sad, where she was like, well, 
the other option is to go into an asylum, of which I probably won't come out. Um, so instead of that, I'll go and get my brain chopped into because hopefully then I'll feel better and I won't have to go into the asylum. So it, she kind of initially she wasn't really convinced by it and kind of almost backed out but eventually she felt like she didn't really have a choice and that was what she should she should do and so they did a very similar leukotomy procedure that Moniz had done using general anesthetic uh, removing the cores and and severing those connections and she seemed pretty happy after the procedure. She, um, when she woke up, she was very calm. She was very placid. Uh, and they, they thought this was amazing, really positive. But a few days later, she did end up having language difficulties and confusion. But in general, they considered it a raging success. Uh, and so they continued doing that for quite some time. And they eventually decided to rename the leukotomy to the lobotomy. And so the reason they changed the name was because they wanted people to associate it with just the frontal lobe uh, so that people didn't think that they were kind of rooting around their entire brain. They were just focused in that area. But to be honest, I don't know if it's just the connotations with lobotomy now, but it sounds so much worse than leukotomy. So yeah, Watson Freeman continued working together for many procedures and Freeman was a huge fan of it and he was really convinced that what they were doing was really amazing, it was having a really positive impact, uh, but Watts on the other hand wasn't as convinced and he was very much of the, Watts was of the position that they should only do lobotomies for the really like the sickest of the sick people kind of as as a last resort type thing whereas freeman was like no like anyone should be able to do this you know even real mild mental disorders should be should be able to be treated and and yeah he really wanted to push people in but watts wasn't really sure and freeman was not a surgeon so he relied on watts in order to do the procedures so they continued to do hundreds of them and some were successful, but many were not. Uh, a lot of them would initially appear successful, uh, but they would soon regress or have serious side effects, like I mentioned. And one of the most notable failures of the lobotomy was that of Rosemary Kennedy, who was the sister of JFK. And it's not really known what it, what her exact disability was, uh, but she had learning difficulties as a child. And as she got older into her early 20s, she was reported to kind of just become more irritable uh, and she would have these fits of very violent rage and, and potentially like hurt people around her. And she was just very erratic seemingly hard to control and yeah generally it seems wasn't in a in a particularly great place and so uh, Freeman and co convinced them that the best thing to do would be to have a lobotomy so she went in for a lobotomy and the procedure went as normal uh, nothing kind of catastrophic happened during the procedure itself but actually the results of it were just absolutely devastating and they gave her a huge amount of brain damage and she ended up uh, having the intellect of a two-year-old and was fully incontinent so it just radically changed her from what she had been before yes having issues and stuff but but functional uh to 
to yeah someone that then had to spend the rest of her life in a care home and she was isolated from her family for many many years and there's some interesting stuff out there about the story of her and how they kept it a secret for a very long time about the fact that she'd had a lobotomy and the fact that it had failed uh, and they kind of said that she was actually a recluse and that was why no one ever saw her and her family were kind of blocked from seeing her for a long time until until later on in the future. So, yeah, a real sad story and something that was probably more common as a result of lobotomies than people really want to think. So even with cases like that, Freeman just 100% believed that what he was doing was great. And he wanted to do it more. He was like, this is the best thing ever the best thing that I want to be able to do is to do this more. But because he needed a surgeon to do a lobotomy, but along with the surgeon, he also needed an operating theatre, a hospital, general anaesthetic, all this kind of stuff that made doing the procedure quite hard work. He couldn't really get to as many people as he wanted and he couldn't get to the specific audience that he wanted. He really wanted to be able to go into asylums and do loads of lobotomies on, on patients there and, and then kind of cure them all. And so he really needed to come up with a solution that was easier, quicker and more accessible. And so he kind of went off and did a load of reading and research into how to access the brain without having to go through the skull. And so what he eventually decided on was that he could go kind of like, this is gross, so sorry, you could go like behind the eye through the eye socket and then at the back of the eye there's a very thin orbital bone so he would use a, a small hammer to to kind of break that so we'd go in yeah he'd go in like with a they've called it many things they call it an ice pick they call it a stiletto they call it you know just like a knife a very long sharp knife but basically yeah he'd take this kind of ice pick go behind the eye break the bone and then he would position it in a way where he could then sweep this pick back and forth in the right areas and that would remove the connections in a different way he'd then pull out do the other eye, go up, move it, move it, move it, pull it out, job done. And he realised that this would give exactly the same result as the the big procedure, but it meant that Freeman could do it himself because he didn't need a hospital or anything like that. It also meant that it was a lot quicker, a lot easier, a lot cheaper. And so he was like, great, I'm, I can go out with this procedure now, which to me sounds insane that just a man could be like, you know what I should do? I should chop people's brains up through their eyes. And that's fine. What a time. What a time. But you know, but you know, like I know he's a doctor, but still, I feel like if a doctor came up to me and was like, "I want to try this procedure that I've never tried ever before on anyone," and it involves me like whacking you, breaking your eye bone, and sweeping about, yeah, very unusual. And so, well, and, and thankfully, you'd be you'd be pleased to know that he would actually knock the patient on, patient unconscious. Uh, and he would do that by using an electric shock machine, which doesn't sound very pleasant at all. But yeah, he'd knock, he'd get this shock machine, give him a jolt, so they'd, they'd kind of go fall unconscious, do the procedure in his office, and then they'd wake up and he'd send him home. Uh, and he, I mean, the fact that he was doing this in an office, and he also never wore a mask, never wore gloves, never did any, you know, proper form of hygiene, which seems insane. Shouldn't say insane. Which seems baffling because 
he's going into your brain with no form of hygiene. Oh, I'm glad I'm not alive at this time. And so when Watts found out about this procedure, he was totally horrified. He was like, no way. I was already, you know, much more sceptical than you, Freeman. You've now gone totally over the top. I totally don't agree with you. You should not be doing this surgery in your office. No, 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 no. And so Watts decided that he was out. He was done. Done with the lobotomy, done with Freeman uh, and and stopped practicing and stopped um, doing any procedures with him. And so... Freeman carried on and he, with his new fancy method that apparently no one had an issue with, uh, at least not in the beginning, um, he went and did loads of them across the country. He kind of travelled them, travelled around the country just doing them all wherever someone would let him. He had a little lobotomobile, uh, which is, yeah, ooh. Uh, And just to give a scale of numbers, in 1949, uh, they did over 5,000. Uh, not just Freeman in general, the the kind of <laughs> doctoring community of of America, but you know you can assume he's doing at least a couple of days. So I wouldn't be surprised if he was, you know, on the many hundreds. And so he kind of carried on doing that, but thankfully, as the procedure increased, criticism also increased. And so whilst there was this kind of initial improvement, it was very commonly felt like the patient would regress. And they would have these really horrible side effects, like I mentioned. People would really lose their personalities. They, he'd kind of go and visit them and be like, oh, what do you, you know, do you worry anymore? Are you anxious anymore? And they'd be like, no. And they'd also be like, but I just don't care about anything. <laughs> so just like totally took, took everything from them. And there is a interesting man who was lobotomized. So there's a man called Howard Dully. And he was one of the youngest people to be lobotomized at age 12. Uh, and it's a real sad story, actually, because basically he was apparently defiant with the, you know, quotation marks defiant uh, because his stepmother thought he was. And, he, and his stepmother took him to all these doctors and they were like, there's nothing wrong with him. He's just a kid. She was like, he doesn't go to bed on time. And they were like, he's 12. And so, yeah, doctors were like, it's fine. But of course, she took him to Freeman and Freeman was like, yeah, you know what the cure to this is? lobotomy uh which sounds horrendous um as as a treatment and something that he shouldn't have agreed to do because it was not needed but anyway dully has has written and and done interviews and stuff about uh his experience and he said you know that he he doesn't really remember the procedure but he has always felt there was something lost and he always felt that there was something different and odd about him uh, and only when he found out when he was older that he had been lobotomized did he really finally understand what had happened to him and what had changed him, uh, which was which is really sad. And the fact that they were just doing it to children at all, apparently they did it to a four-year-old, uh, is just, yeah, really horrible. But it, it was it was very popular and it did take off in the UK as well as a treatment. And there was a good quote actually to kind of explain why it was taking off, uh, which I read in a BBC article, which I'll link. And it said... When I visited mental hospitals, you saw straitjackets, padded cells, and it was patently apparent that some of the patients were, I'm sorry to say, subjected to physical violence, recalls retired neurosurgeon Jason Bryce. The chance of a cure through lobotomy seemed preferable to the life sentence of incarceration in an institution. We hoped it would offer a way out, says Mr Bryce. We hoped it would help. 
And that's why I really think it links into this conversation about asylums, because the asylums were so rubbish that this was a preferable alternative to a lot of people. And and I could see that. And also two psychiatrists who wanted to help and did actually want to be able to give a a cure and, and treat people, this was something that they could actually do and and hope would work. But over over time, more and more criticism came out. Clearly, the results were not what they wanted. And thankfully, Freeman himself was eventually banned from performing the procedures, uh, mainly due to the failures he had, because he was quite awful. <laughs> like, even though he did, like, the whole procedure was awful, but he was also just bad at doing it. In, it said in one case, they were doing a photo shoot during it, so he turned to get a photo and then immediately killed the person he was doing it. <laughs> Which is just, well, oh, I can't even. Uh, and he, yeah, would would perform lobotomies several times on the same patient because he was convinced that it didn't work. And his final patient was a woman called Helen Mortensen, and it was her third lobotomy, and she again died on the table of cerebral hemorrhage because he did a bad job. Which I think is going to happen if you're going to stick a pen a pick in someone's eye and sweep it back in their brain it's not gonna end well and thankfully that stopped so he stopped being able to do them which was good The turning point of the procedure as a whole was very much around the finding of effective psychiatric drugs. So around a similar time, they found this drug called clopromazine. And it was, they were trying to find compounds for antihistamines, apparently, and they found this compound and they gave it to people in the war and they noticed that it tended to chill them out a bit. Uh, and so what they realised was it was an antipsychotic uh, and it's still used today and they advertised it as like the chemical lobotomy because they wanted people to get take this drug rather than getting their brains chopped up. Uh, so that's how they first advertised it but it became very clear that it was actually effective, which is good and it didn't lead to all the horrific side effects. They also found the drug lithium which was also much more effective and is still used today. And when I was reading about lithium, I didn't know this, but they put it in 7-Up. So when they created 7-Up, you know how like Coke, Coke, the drink used to have cocaine in it? I didn't realise that 7-Up had lithium in it. Uh, and it was, it was like literally like 7-Up as in a bit of an upper. So I'm glad that they don't have lithium in 7-Up anymore, but I'm also glad that they found it and that it was very effective for people. And so these drugs were actually, yeah, were much more effective and were a real game changer for psychiatry. And there was just kind of continual improving improvement of drugs over the years uh, with the, they found then like fluoxetine, SSRIs, SNRIs, all these drugs that then kind of kept being developed and, and made. And that was just a huge, huge revolution from a mental health perspective, which I think is is amazing when you think about it, really, that this... Uh, these drugs that we are creating are really impacting people and really improving their lives because I think, at least I do, just kind of take it for granted that there's uh, medication available for a variety of mental health disorders. But if that wasn't a cho- even a even a choice back in the day, then you just got locked up in an asylum. 
Yeah, um, and <laughs> I mean, they did a good job at, at finding these drugs, but they did have very questionable drug trials back then. They kind of just gave it to some animals and then were like, here you go, give it a go. But if you want to know more about local, local, recent drug trials and how it is much harder to do that, then I do have a when drug trials go wrong episode which i did ages ago and it's actually one of my lowest downloaded episodes so i wonder if i titled it wrong but it's really good <laughs> i really enjoyed it uh, and it yeah it's a very interesting process so you should listen to that if you haven't and yeah so thankfully at that point they kind of got rid of lobotomies and i think in general lobotomies then got this very bad reputation because they deserve it but especially media, uh, it was in the bell jar. Obviously, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is probably the most prevalent example of it that people know of. And that really kind of turned the tide in terms of positive, any, if there was any positive sentiment left, uh, that very much confirmed that it was not good. Uh, and thankfully, we don't do any lobotomies anymore. But I thought this was very interesting because they do still do some forms of psychosurgery today. I've named two, which have very... I don't know why I thought it was a good idea to put these names in this episode. Uh, but they have something called a bilateral cingulotomy or a gamma knife bilateral anterior capsulotomy. Capsulotomy. There you go. <laughs> you can Google those two. I did read about them. They were very interesting. I do not know enough about them to confidently talk about them on here. But basically, there are other ideas that psychosurgery may work, uh, and especially these were used for severe, recurrent, uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder. And yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I, don't, I don't disagree that psychosurgery is... I don't disagree. I don't agree that psychosurgery is, is totally pointless. I'm sure that we may eventually find some effective ways of doing it but i think we just don't know we don't know enough about our brains and the fact that to be weird a brain is thinking about the the brain and how it works i find really trippy my brain is thinking about brains about how they work what is earth it, it takes you down that that rabbit hole which we don't have time for today <laughs> but yes uh, and so, thankfully, this kind of story and the clo and the um, drugs that they found really had a humongous impact because it really led to the to the downfall and the closing of the asylums. So, in one case, it said prior to the introduction of clopromazine, the amount of discharges from institutions for very ill people was six percent, and afterwards, once they had these effective drugs, drugs, it was sixty seven percent, which I think is a stunning stat because. How great is that? Before none of these people could go home and now 67%, and this is back in the day when obviously they weren't given much support, but 67% managed to, to, to leave. And there was then a full introduction of a deinstitutionalization. Really going in with the long words on this episode. Deinstitutionalization 
And the idea with this was uh, especially the effectiveness of drugs, but there was also really overcrowding, uh, real issues with funding. There was this report that came, this is in the UK, there was a report that came out in the 70s, late 60s, early 70s about um, the horrific conditions that are being held within these hospitals. And that really pushed the move to community-based care in the UK. Uh, And that was very much started to be implemented in 1983. Uh, when there was a care in the community policy introduced and i'm not going to do a political history of how well this worked but questionable lots of reading out there on it i feel like otherwise we're going to be kind of in some kind of like sociology lecture so yeah they tried it tried to get care into the community Uh, and they did it work who knows? I mean, I think I think how we our current systems surely are more effective than what they were like in the 30s. But I'm sure that success is variable and I'm sure that we still don't have it right with our care in the community. And actually, even this week, this very week, uh, I was reading an article on BBC about people with autism and, lear- and learning disabilities who have been held for more than 20 years in institutions. And it was identified that there's been more than 100 people across the UK who have been held for extended periods like that and have not had any chance or support in order to leave back into the community when they very much wanted to. So... The fact that this was this week, I think, shows that, yes, uh, we are moving care into the community. And yes, we have managed to close the asylums, uh, but we there's still more to be done. There's still more to be done. What did we learn? Uh, many things. Don't cut into people's brains with no evidence or reason. That is something I'm very glad we learned. <laughs> I hope you are too. <laughs> so yes, there was much improvements in that. Uh, psychosurgery kind of fell out, which is good. And the only ones that are around are, in fact, hopefully effective. Uh, I think we learned a lot about uh, hygiene and how to perform medical procedures not in your office with no gloves on. Uh, thankfully, as we all know, in this time of COVID, there is we're very good with our hygiene, our PPE, Uh, We understand infection control. I think all of us understands how COVID spreads, which we probably didn't before. So huge, huge leaps and bounds in that area, which is great. Uh, And we did learn a lot about managing and support mental health in the community because it is important and somewhat effective. So I think overall a positive, positive end to a not positive procedure and way of care there we are uh so there were there was one resource i wanted to call out specifically and it is a podcast series through the podcast called american scandal and it's they american scandal is good they do like three to four episode little stories on if you like this podcast you'll like that that podcast they do yeah little 20 30 minute 20 30 they do two to four episodes on on American scandals, basically. And so there was a... I listened to the Theranos one, which was good. They did an Enron one, which was very good. Uh, and then I listened to one called The Ice Pick Surgeon. Uh, and I really recommend it. I actually it really inspired this episode. Uh, but it taught, it's very much about Freeman, Walter Freeman, his life. Uh, and it goes into a lot more detail about him and his background and his... 
his his life outside of the lobotomy. Uh, it was super interesting. It was very... They do like dramatised sections, which I'm sometimes not a huge fan of, but I think they did them well. And I actually... I listened to it when I was driving home, doing a very long drive the other day, and I listened to like all four episodes, one after the other. Um, so yeah, it was, it was quite addictive. So I do recommend that. Otherwise, just lots of kind of random bits and bobs of reading, which I will put in the show notes. So there we are. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, as mentioned, love you to follow me on Instagram when it goes wrong pod and would also love any emails, any email feedback. Uh, I'm at when it, I'm when it goes wrong pod at gmail.com. 